I want to begin, if we were to look into the scriptures and look in at the time of Jesus' birth, John or uh, Luke chapter 2 would tell us that a great crowd had gathered. It was a crowded city. Very, very crowded city. And you fast forward 30 years to John chapter 1, and we're told that Jesus goes out and he begins to call on some men to be his disciples. In a short time, Jesus gathered 12 men to go on a journey with him. To go on this journey with him. At the beginning of this journey, these 12 men saw a crowd of Samaritans come together. And it grew in number. They saw a crowd of people in Galilee not only gather, but they welcomed Jesus. And as a result of seeing him and hearing him, the crowd of them, the Galileans, grew. These 12 heard Jesus teach again and again. And what they heard was an unmatched authoritative voice like they hadn't heard of any other rabbi. And it caught their attention. And as a result, they continued to grow as others heard this one known as Jesus of Nazareth teach. They witnessed a man healed of leprosy. And that drew a crowd. They witnessed a man healed of paralysis. And again, that drew a greater and bigger crowd. They saw a massive crowd gather on a hillside that that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And they heard Jesus teach. We know it today as the Sermon on the Mount. A massive crowd there listening to Jesus. They witnessed the miracle of taking... (laughs) Five loaves and two fishes to feed not only a crowd of 5,000 men, but their wives and their children. They got to see this. They took this in. And story after story, miracle after miracle, the crowds continued to grow following Jesus, wanting to see what Jesus was going to do next. I just want to ask a question for a moment. Are you getting the picture here? On Palm Sunday, bigger and bigger and bigger and greater crowds have been increasing in number since Jesus began his earthly ministry. Crowds wanted to see Jesus. Crowds wanted to hear Jesus teach. They wanted to see him do the miraculous. And you have the miraculous happening that can draw a crowd. Throughout his earthly ministry, joining the crowd and following Jesus was an in thing to do. It was a popular thing to do. It was a common thing to do. In our social media world today, it would be something that was trending and people would be like, hey, I'm in with this. And they'd be snapping photos so you could share with others, hey, I'm following this crowd too. I'm following this this savior, this rabbi from, from Nazareth. And time and time again, people would jump out of the crowd and run up to Jesus with maybe their their paralyzed son or some ailment to one of their children and say, Jesus, will you heal him? And the crowds would gather around to see what would happen as he would respond, as the scripture shares with us. These crowds had personal desires. They had personal requests. A lot in the crowd had dreams. They had hopes. Not unlike that we do at times. The idea here, I believe, was Jesus, grant me my wish. This is what I long for. This is my dream. This is my hope. This is what I'm hoping that you will do. Will you grant me my wish? That idea. Whatever the crowd's desire, whatever their quest, whatever their hope, whatever their dream is, well, the word has gotten out. 
that this Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. It's Passover. And the Old Testament law said, Jews go and assemble in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, to remember your God's faithfulness of rescuing you out of Egypt, the Exodus as we know it. 50,000. 50,000. That's the number of residents that had the zip code, if you will, of Jerusalem as their home. But when Passover shows up and Passover happens, that conservative number of 50,000 still remains conservative in doubles. 100 to 120,000 people are now gathered in the city of Jerusalem at this time for Passover. In other words, it's a very, very crowded city. It's a crowded city. John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, that's where he is at this moment, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Guess what? This is going to draw a crowd. This is going to draw a crowd. This isn't my idea. This is what John records in verse 9 of chapter 12. John writes, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany with Lazarus, they came not only to account of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Again, let me ask the question, are you getting the picture? Crowds are growing. Crowds are getting bigger. Crowds are coming to see Jesus and Lazarus too. Let's see what he has to say. Let's see this thing that we've heard. So it's Passover. It's Lazarus. It's Jesus. They draw a crowd. You put them all together and it becomes a large, gigantic crowd. And this is the setting that brings us to what we know today as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. In fact, if you have your Bible, let's go to John's account. Thank you, Warren, for reading that to us. But now is your opportunity to open up your Bible to John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it now. We're going to look at a few verses here from John's account of the triumphal entry. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 12 to 19 this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It begins this way. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. When Jesus was glorified, then, then they remembered what these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Meet Jesus because he'd done this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. John's account of 
the triumphal entry. I put in your notes the other accounts, Matthew's account of Matthew 21, Mark's account of chapter 11, and then Luke's account in chapter 19. But this is John's account for Palm Sunday, and I want to submit to you, it's an abbreviated account. It's not as long as the other accounts, nor does it have the detail that the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sorry, have of this famous story. John's abbreviated account of the triumphant entry does have some uniqueness to it. It's the only one who dates this historic event happening on the Sunday before Passover. Hence why we have Palm Sunday, right? Make sense? John is the only one in his account of the triumphal entry that references the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In other words, pulling a curtain, adding in some context, getting to see, have an idea of what is buzzing around the crowds and what their conversations are about and what their interest is. It's not only Passover. We're going to get to see Jesus. We're going to see, get to see this man named Lazarus who is risen from the dead. John's abbreviated account of the triumphal entry is the only one who uses the Greek word phoenix. Can I get you to say the word phoenix? Phoenix. And you're thinking, are you from New York and you're trying to say phoenix? I am not. Phoenix, you just spoke Greek. That is the Greek word for palm. Why do I bring that up? Because only John's account uses the word phoenix in his account of the triumphal entry. The other three use a Greek word what we would get the word branch. So thanks to John, we have Palm Sunday. If it was for the other three, we would have branch Sunday. Make sense? So this is why this word is important because he puts this in here, this word phoenix meaning palm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account record the historic event with a little bit more detail. Let me give you some examples of this. From Matthew 21 verse 1, Jesus gives us instruction, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey and her colt. Mark gives more detail as well. In his account, chapter 11, verse 7, here's an example. And they brought the colts, the disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and Jesus sat on it. And then finally, Luke's account, just giving you an example of his detail, Luke 19, verse 36, as Jesus rode along, the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Again, these are details that John doesn't put in his account of this story. They agree of what happened. One just has this perspective, the lens would be like watching the news and having reporters give various reports. They're not going to be exactly the same of what their focus is, but it all comes to be the truth in this case between the four writers. So why does John's account omit some of these synoptic gospel details? Well, I want to submit to you that the primary reason is because John's account focuses on something that the other gospel accounts do not. And that's the crowds. Remember I said a few moments ago, asked you a question a couple times, are you getting the picture here? Crowds. John's account focuses on the crowds. In fact, in the Greek word is oklos, the crowd, it's used three times in this account. We don't have that as in the other accounts. Where's the crowd being used? Where's this Greek word oklos for crowd being used? Verse 12 says that there was a large crowd. Oklos, crowd. Verse 17, the crowd. Verse 18, the crowd. Again, what John is trying to say in a shortened version, condensed version, not as many verses, 
is I want you to see something that the others aren't going to focus on. Not that they had a conversation, but he's saying, I want you to see what's going on with the crowds here. They're a huge factor in this story. Jonah also highlights two other very small crowds. One actually has a number. We know how many were in it. It's 12, and that's the disciples. Verse 16. And then we have, lastly, the Pharisees. A little bit bigger crowd that are gathered on this day as well to take all this in. So those are our crowds. And while all the crowds have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, I want to submit to you that their priorities for why they are there beyond Passover is varied. It's mixed. And we're going to see that as we break this down today in what the crowd's focus is about. What John's account tells us about what they're there for. Yes, it's Passover. Yes, the law is instructed. Yes, we want to see Jesus. Yes, we want to see Lazarus. But there's some motives. There's some desires here that are greater and they're distinct in terms of how the crowds are played out here. So from John's account of the triumphal entry, there's two areas I want us to look at today. First of all, the symbolism of Palm Sunday. I would bet that any sermon you're going to hear today or have heard in the past or will hear in the future is going to dial in on the symbolism of Palm Sunday. We'll do that too. Break that down. Remind ourselves what they mean. And then we're going to look, as you guessed, the crowds. Because that's what John's account picks out. That's why I chose John's account. And lastly, I'll invite you to look in at Jesus yourself. To take a moment today and stop and go, where is Jesus for you? We have a most amazing week planned here at Grace Hills. And it's important, at least for me, and I want to invite you to be there too, to get the right perspective, to have the right mindset, to come in humbly and worship of what this, me, this week, this coming week means for us. So when we look at the symbols, we'll look at these first at Palm Sunday. What do they mean? What do we see? Well, I want to submit to you that when we look at the symbolism of Palm Sunday, we see four symbols. The first one is this. We look at the symbolism of Palm Sunday, we see palm branches representing Jewish nationalism. Representing, signifying, pointing out Jewish nationalism. So when you look back at verse 13, they took branches. Now the other gospels would just say branches, but we get John's account of palm branches, palm trees. They're taking these out, which is a significant part of this, right? So what do we have here happening? Well, palm branches have some legacy before this day. Let me just give you two examples of that. Palm branches were used in celebration when the temple was rededicated back in the Maccabean era. So this being brought as God uses in many times, and I appreciate this, object lessons throughout teaching his people, palm branches, palm ferns, however you want to look at it, those are used to be symbolic and have deeper meaning for his people to have understanding. So they're used with Jewish nationalism, thinking back to the Maccabean era when their temple was rededicated. And then right now, for the people that are gathered there, they're also used to symbolize victory. Victory. It symbolizes Israel's hope in this Jesus of Nazareth to overthrow the Roman occupation in their own country. So it's not just, hey, it's great to see Jesus. We are symbolizing our nationalism, our being patriotic as a nation. 
We remember that we used him back, our ancestors tell us that used him back in the rededication of his temple. We also use them for victory. And Jesus, we are signifying to you and to one another that we are hoping you are the one who brings us victory over Romans' occupation for that. And so for believers today, palm branches symbolize it's Palm Sunday. We get that. In other words, Passion Week is here. Easter week is beginning today. When we look at the symbolism of Palm Sunday, secondly, we see Hosanna. That's communicating save now. It's communicating save now. John chapter 12, verse 13, it says that they, what does it say here? Look at the scriptures. It says they cried out Hosanna. The Greek in here is imperfect, which means we don't know when this is going to end. (laughs) We see it recorded once. But crying out, this idea of Hosanna, 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 it's continually going on throughout this time, this day as Jesus is there. We don't know when it's going to end. The crowd shouting is actually saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what's recorded here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is actually taken and comes from Psalm 118 verse 26. That's what they're quoting there. That's what they're saying there. But here's what's interesting. What's not in Psalm 118, verse 26, is what's added here Then John records it. So look back at your text again. Hosanna, we understand that that's going on and on and on and on. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this part, even the king of Israel. This is at an end. This is what they add to this. The crowds see Jesus on a mission as a national liberator, to liberate them from Roman occupation. Hence where they add this phrase, this state, stating this and crying this out as well. And I would agree, Jesus is on a mission. He is on a mission as this week begins, but it's a greater mission. It's a triumphal mission to bring salvation to lost sinners. You see, if Jesus had only been focusing on throwing off overthrowing the Roman occupation, what will we have to worship today? What will we be celebrating today? So we have a reason to be grateful in worship and praise to our Heavenly Father for Jesus obeying His Father, fulfilling the mission His Father sent Him to do, and going to the cross of Calvary and dying for our sins. What else do we see here with the symbolism of Palm Sunday? We see, thirdly, a donkey's colt, and that's representing peace. It's representing peace. John chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 reflect this donkey, and he's sitting on the colt of a donkey, and it's listed here and pulled out here for us to see. Jesus did not ride on a war horse on this day. He, he, he did not come with a sword in his hand. And he is certainly not right now going to be wearing the victor's crown. Bringing victory that I'm going to overthrow Rome in our city. That's the characteristics of a military leader. So Jesus riding in a donkey's colt symbolizes that Jesus is bringing a future peace. Not only to Israel, but to all people groups, all nations. Which is why we have missionaries that we support. Because we want them to know the peace that passes understanding. To know Christ as their Savior. You notice the phrase, daughter of Zion. So fear not, daughter of Zion. 
This is a reference to the people living in Jerusalem. It's the children, if you will, the daughter of Zion. God's children that are living there. And finally, lastly, when we look at the symbolism of Palm Sunday, we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy. We see Jesus fulfilling prophecy. So John chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Let me read that for you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Hosanna, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. There's the greater mission. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. That's the symbolism of him doing this. Jesus is on a mission, but it's a greater mission. It's a triumphal mission, as again, as I said, to bring salvation, not just to a group of people, but to all people of all nations and all people groups, that if they place their trust in Christ for the work that he's going to do, is we're going to remember on Friday and his resurrection, that we can have hope in Christ in this mission that he is on. The truth of the matter is this. No other king could take on such a mission but Jesus and Jesus alone, which is why we worship him, which is why we focus on him. So when we as a crowd here in person look in at the symbols today, we can see them and we can understand what their meaning is. But how about the crowds? How about the crowds in this story? Again, the crowds are what we look at in John's gospel that he focuses on. So let's focus on them ourselves. When we look at the crowds of Palm Sunday, what do we see? What's, what's going on here? When we look at the crowds of Palm Sunday, we see there's four people groups, if you will. Four groups of people. So let's look at them. First, when we look at the crowds of Palm Sunday, we see the visitors. They want Jesus, the miracle maker. They want Jesus, the miracle maker. If you look at verse 12 and verse 18, that's a gives you a picture of this. So the visitors come from all over Israel for Passover. Some want to see Lazarus. They all want to see Jesus. And for some of them, this is where I mentioned earlier, some come with various priorities, motives, interests, focus. And in this case, these visitors are coming to say, hey, we've heard about this Jesus, the miracle maker. You can fill in your notes and miracle worker if you want to use that. I just use the miracle maker because it's like he's the one who makes this happen. We got to go see him. So the visitors come from all over Israel. Word is spread over the past three years that about this Jesus of Nazareth who is the miracle maker. The crowd in verse 12 and verse 18 not only has come for Passover, they've come to see this miracle maker. And if we go into our world today and we look around over the last number of decades, I don't know about you, but occasionally I've turned into Christian television and I've seen something of a crowd in a stadium around the world. And you're thinking, what is that crowd there for? They're there because they believe there's a person who is, in essence, a miracle maker themselves. I don't know if you've ever been to one or seen them on TV or heard about Benny Hinn's Miracle Crusades. It's interesting what everyone would crowd in to gather like, hey, you've got to come see this. Healing can happen. 
And so in 2001, HBO sent a team and thought, let's go see if this really happens. If he's the miracle maker. And they found out that not all the miracles he could do was, was happening. And then there's some guys from CBS that, I don't know, maybe it's changed. We'll go in 2004 and we'll do a study, a documentary, and see if this happens. And guess what? <laughs> they found that the miracle maker wasn't making miracles happen. In fact, they found out that some of their leaders, some of their ushers, were telling people, for example, in a wheelchair, no, you can't go up on stage. We're not here to have you do that. And so they were selective of what miracles could be done. I just remind you, not a whole lot's changed in our fallen world. That Jesus is somebody that people see as like, hey, that's the one who is the miracle maker. He's the miracle worker. And I would just ask you, what do you seek Jesus for? I mean, I want to have a better life. And certainly people needed to be healed as we look in through the account of Scripture. But that's not Jesus' ultimate mission to say physically healing of somebody. As great as that would be, as important as that would be, in our perspective, he has a greater mission than that. But for this crowd... They want to see the miracle maker. What else do we see here? When we look at the crowds of Palm Sunday, we see a second crowd, and that's the locals. They want Jesus the conqueror. They want Jesus the conqueror. If you look in verse 17, the crowd that had been there with him, called Lazarus of the empty tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness about him. And I want to submit to you with a hope that, hey, maybe if he could do that, He can be our conqueror. He can overthrow this Roman occupation. And just to be clear, I've categorized the visitors wanting the miracle maker and the locals wanting Jesus the conqueror. I'm sure it's a cross-pollination of both. They want to see Jesus the miracle maker and they want him to be the conqueror. But perhaps one of these groups, one of these crowds, locals here, are realizing how much more than if you're living outside of Jerusalem, how much more this occupation is. And how it hampers what you do. And everywhere you go. This was certainly what Judas Iscariot wanted. And he's one of the 12 that Jesus picked. He had in his mind, he wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman occupation of Israel. In other words, he thought, hey, if Jesus does this, and that's what I'm hoping that he's going to do, that's what I want then maybe when he takes into this position of political power and the Roman occupation is gone, I'll have a specialized place, position of power myself. But Jesus didn't come as a political figure. Sorry, Judas. He didn't come as a military figure either. When the crowds realized that Jesus was not going to be their conqueror, was not going to be the miracle maker that they hoped he would be. Only days from now, instead of chanting or shouting out Hosanna, they're shouting out, crucify him. Because this isn't the Jesus we thought we were getting. This isn't working out the way in my mind, in my perspective, what my needs are. Crucify him. Today, as I thought about this, we ask and pray for Jesus to give us political victory at times. 
And I think we can do that and we should do that. But I just want to remind us that even in the midst of that, we need to go, yet not my will, your will be done. Depending upon how you vote and your perspective on other things, that can be exciting and other times it can be very challenging. I'm just simply saying that God's got a bigger plan than America. (laughs) He's got a massive plan and purpose beyond just what we're dealing with in our country. And I want to remind us for us that yes, Jesus can conquer a lot of things or whatever in his will is, but we need to be in submission to whatever brings him greatest glory. Another group in the crowd, people are gathered. We see them, of course, are the disciples. And I call these guys, they want to see Jesus the decoder. (laughs) They want some mystery taken out of the equation. They are not getting everything. John notes in his writing that the disciples did not have the perspective that they had when he wrote this. If you look back at verse 16, it says the disciples, which John was included at this point, as he was reflecting back at this time on Palm Sunday, did not understand these things at first. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Not until the cross and the resurrection, until Jesus is glorified, did they have that. And furthermore, they're unaware of Zechariah's prophecy was implied to Jesus on this day. They also don't have the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word before them and help them understand and remind them of what God is doing. And so when we read the Gospels, we read that Jesus regularly asked his disciples, do you still not understand? Over and over and over again. And here, once again, John, full disclosure, full transparency, we didn't get it. (laughs) We needed Jesus the decoder. We needed him to explain, what are you doing? What does this all mean? What is this all about? And for us, I would just ask you to stop and think about this question. When is the last time you asked Jesus why? A circumstance, a trial, a situation, something go the way you wanted it to go. There's a need and you're going, why, God? If you've been there, if you're there now, I would just simply say, join the crowd. That's a crowded place to be. Of wanting to have Jesus explain why he's doing what he's doing. I look back on my own life and how things have happened in my life. I've had some why questions. At the end of the day, we have to come to the grips of going, I may not get to know why. It may not matter the most for what I need to know right now. One of the verses that helps me with this is Romans 11, 34. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? It's not going to be me. So we have verses like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because in certain times, in certain ways in life, Jesus isn't going to decode it for you. He wants us to trust and to put our faith in him and walk with him in obedience. Lastly, when we look at the crowds of Palm Sunday, we see the Pharisees. Well, they have one thing on their mind and they want Jesus dead. They want Jesus dead. How do we know this? How do we see this? Well, jumping up a few verses above verse 12 of John chapter 12, verse 9, 
goes like this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So, the chief priests, the Pharisees here, as we're pointing out, made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So they already have it in their mind. They want Jesus dead. But they're thinking, let's take out Lazarus too. John records this for us. Why? Verse 11 has our answer. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And the Pharisees are thinking, we can't have this happening. That's going to undermine our authority to him. Credibility, the list goes on. Why did the Pharisees want Lazarus dead? They didn't want Lazarus influencing the crowds that had gathered around to learn and see Lazarus and then see Jesus. And verse 19 tells us furthermore why, he wants him de- why they want him dead. So the Pharisees said to one another in verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world there is the Greek word cosmos. You could translate that world. You could also translate that as people. You could also translate that, as I want to submit to you, as crowds. The crowds have gone after him. And so as we look ahead to this week, Wednesday and Friday, as we look at this, and we know the story, it would seem that the Pharisees got their way. But did they? Did they get their way in the end? I see someone shaking their head no. Thank you for that, that you're listening. That's true. They did not. Well then, if that's the case, since Jesus rose from the dead and is coming again, then it's important for us to look in at Jesus. And I want to invite you to do that. When you look in at Jesus on Palm Sunday, is Jesus your king? That's king with a capital K. King with a capital K. Or is Jesus a small K king? What do I mean by that? In other words, Jesus, just be the miracle maker of my life. But let me rule the rest of it. Jesus, just be the conqueror of my problems in a situation that I don't like and I don't want this way, but I'll take care of everything else. Jesus, just be the decoder of this situation, this trial I'm going through, or what's going on, so I can understand. But I'll figure out everything else. Small K, King Jesus. See, Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus came in Jerusalem for a greater purpose and with greater meaning and with a greater reason. Jesus came as a king. That's king with a capital K. I ask, why must we get this fact today? Let this video answer that question. Watch. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. 
No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Lord Jesus, you are that king. You're so much more than a miracle maker or a conqueror or someone to help us understand life. This video reminds us you're so much more than that. You had a greater purpose than what the crowds had of that day, what they could even see. So God, may we not fall into where we just want you to be a small K king. In certain areas of our lives to figure stuff out and let us figure out and manage the rest. God, as we go into this week, when we do so with the reminder that you are king, capital K king, 
God, be exalted this week at Grace Hills and all that we do. Prepare our hearts and minds to worship you, to honor you, to exalt you as the king you are. We pray this and we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.